Good morning, everybody. Have you um, ever had to act as a mediator? Uh, if you're the parent of more than one child, the answer is almost certainly yes. Perhaps you actually have to act as a mediator all the time. Have you ever needed a mediator? Uh, that begs the question, what is a mediator? Well, a mediator is a go-between. That's what a mediator is. But uh, if we think about it, a mediator actually has to be someone who is prepared to and is able to simultaneously represent two parties, one to the other and the other to the one. A mediator must represent two parties at the same time. Uh, well, um, a, a matchmaker is a mediator, um, our friend, uh, Pastor Chris Green, acted as a, a, a matchmaker for Joe and me. He, he represented Joe to me, and he represented me to Joe. And he did a really great job. <laughs> he, he faithfully represented Joe to me. He told me all about her, um, so that I was really keen to meet her, which I was. And he did a really great job faithfully representing me to Joe by telling her absolutely nothing about me at all. <laughs> Which was very wise. <laughs> Matchmakers are mediators. Um, but mediators are otherwise usually involved in times of conflict, aren't they? And a good mediator is someone who can faithfully represent both parties. And if you think about it for a moment, actually, that's a job that's really hard to pull off well. Um, in my time as a pastor, I've been called upon to act as a mediator very occasionally, only uh, maybe two or three times that I can think of. And actually, when I think about those occasions that I have been called upon to act as a mediator, I, I usually reflect upon them and think, I didn't actually do a very good job at all. Um, I'm not a very good mediator. Um, I, I reckon I can faithfully represent one person. I, I mean, if you need an advocate, I'll have a go. But being a mediator is something that's quite different. That's somebody who is able to faithfully represent simultaneously two parties, one to the other and the other to the one. And that's a tough gig. Being a mediator is a difficult job. Well, today we conclude an 11-part series on the book of Exodus, a series of sermons in which we've traveled out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, and we've arrived at the base of Mount Sinai. And we've covered, in terms of Israel's history, we've covered actually 11, sorry, three months and three days, and it's taken us nearly exactly that long to do it. And last week we read together the first 17 verses of chapter 20, the, the Ten Commandments. And in the verses that we've read just now, that Rowan read to us, what we hear actually is we hear the immediate reaction of Israel to these Ten Commandments. And interestingly, their response to the Ten Commandments was, in essence, we don't want to hear God's voice anymore. You speak, Moses, and we'll listen. But 
we don't think we'd survive if we have to listen to God's voice anymore. And uh, this leaves me guessing as to how God felt about that. I mean, did he feel rejected? Um, I mean, we've all had times in our lives, haven't we, when, when we've been involved in something, we've been politely told to butt out, that our involvement would be no longer required or from now on would be an indirect one. And perhaps the dads here know what it is like when they offer to tuck their child in at night and the child says, no, I want mummy to do it. Well, what's God's response? Did he throw up his hands and say, fine, whatever? (laughs) Well, what is God's response? Well, actually, Moses himself gives us an insight into this. It's not actually in Exodus. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses is speaking to the adult children of those people who actually were there on that day at the base of Mount Sinai. In Deuteronomy 5, we have a sermon that's preached 40 years on to the children of that generation. And he tells them everything that happened and, and, how, and how they, through their parents, reacted to it. And I'm going to read it. If you'd like to read with me, I'm on page 145, 145, Deuteronomy chapter 5. And I'm going to begin at verse 23. It's Moses who's speaking. Verse 23 When you heard the voice out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the the leaders of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty. We have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. But, But now why should we die? This great fire will consume us and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the fire as we have and survived? Moses, you go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you, we will listen and obey. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and with their children forever. Go, tell them to return to their tents, but you stay here with me so that I may give you all the commands, decrees, and laws you are to teach them to follow in the land I am giving them to possess. Well, um, that helps us, turning back to Exodus 20, that helps us to understand what's going on here, doesn't it? God's judgment on their sentiment, the Israelite sentiment was, in essence, we don't want God to speak to us anymore. And God's judgment on that sentiment was, "Mm, that's good. That's great. That's right. It is good because they've experienced for themselves and now understand God's holiness, his majesty, his awesomeness, his glory, his power, and most importantly of all, his absolute holiness. And in the light of that, they know that they need a savior. But more than that, they know that they need a mediator. 
That's what the Israelites were saying. They were saying, Moses, we're not rejecting God. Far from it. We will be his people and he will be our God. But, but we now know, we can see for ourselves, we need a mediator. Moses, please be the mediator because we will listen to you. And God's response, which we get uh, in, in both Exodus 20 and, and in Deuteronomy 5, God's response essentially is, is, I'm thrilled that they get it. I'm thrilled that they understand that they need a mediator. And God is thrilled that they understand that they need a mediator because he has one in mind already. You need a mediator? Here's one I prepared earlier. And so in verse 20, um, we see Moses begin acting as a mediator. And the rest of chapter 20 is all about Moses the mediator. In verse 20, Moses faithfully represents God to the people. In verse 21, we see the people of God remain at a distance in their tents now, away from Mount Sinai, while God, sorry, while Moses approaches God. And in all that follows, right through to the end of chapter 23, the Lord teaches Moses what he is to say on his behalf, faithfully representing him to his people. This includes, in verses 24 to 26, of chapter 20. This includes the Lord teaching Moses how he will faithfully represent the people to him when that's his job, how he's going to do that, how he approaches God to offer sacrifices, burnt offerings, and fellowship offerings. This is about Moses the mediator, a mediatorial relationship. And now, actually, I'm going to move through the passage backwards. I'd like to start by making some comments about verses 22 to 26. Then I'm going to go back to verse 20. Have a look at that. But let's think about verses 22 and 23. Um, Again, God spells out his abhorrence of idolatry. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Idolatry is the worship of idols, images, or statues. And I taught in some depth about this last week. Um, and, and why this is so offensive to God and so damaging to people. So having taught on that, I won't repeat myself now. But we can see that it is repeated. God repeats it again here because, because Israelite worship is going to look so very, very different to Egyptian worship and to Canaanite worship. It's going to be so different to the worship of the peoples around them. Egyptian and Canaanite worship was, uh, was polytheistic. Um, they worshipped a, a vast collection of gods and goddesses, a vast, a vast cupboard of, of deities. And it was idolatrous worship, focused completely on idols, on statues. But, but when the Israelites worship Yahweh, it is, to not, it is not to look like that. It would have been almost inconceivable to the ancient mind. Worship without, without an image representing the deity... You know, like, where do we point? Like, how's that going to work? I can't even visualize it. And yet they've got to visualize it. They've got to do it because this is the command. And it's a brand new idea. You will not have idols. What will it look like? Well, God now describes it. Verse 24. Verse 24. Make an altar of earth for me. And sacrifice on it burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. 
Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, or your private parts may be exposed. And again, these instructions can best be understood as a way of saying that Israelite worship will not look anything like Egyptian or Canaanite worship. Both the Egyptians and the Canaanites, they they constructed huge, finely built altars, elaborate edifices, and their worship actually often involved nudity. Um, Indeed, it often involved various forms of obscenity. None of this is needed for God's people. Worship is to be simple, and worship is to be pure. The focus, the focus is not going to be about what we've done for God, of oh, the magnificence of our altar, the magnificence of our buildings, the extravagance of our sacrifices and offerings. The, the focus is not on what we've done for God. The focus is not on what we're doing for God. The focus is on what God has done for us. The magnificence of his glory, the extravagance of his grace. So, moving back to verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to you to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Um, And we now understand that actually this is a faithful representation of God. Moses is doing a good job as a mediator. He's he's representing God's position accurately. But I think it is worth thinking about this verse for a little bit because this single verse contains a beautiful paradox. And that paradox is this. If you fear God, you've got nothing to fear. I'll say that again. If you're afraid of God, you don't have to be afraid of anything. It's a beautiful paradox. Um, This paradox, I think, helps us with a conundrum, a conundrum for us um, that can preoccupy us, and it does preoccupy us in church. From time to time, we we think about it endlessly. The conundrum that that, that is worth trying to understand is, is what the fear of the Lord is. What is this, the fear of the Lord? Um, Because most of us probably know that the Bible repeats the phrase, the fear of the Lord, many times. It's a phrase that's found in both Old and New Testaments. We prayed it at the beginning of the service when we got to the end of Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord, biblically speaking, is a very good thing. Indeed, as the Bible says in a variety of places, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But that's problematic for us in our culture because, actually, we don't like being motivated by fear. We think that's nasty. And we really despise leaders who attempt to control people through fear. It is, almost without exception, evil dictators who use fear to control people. So, for example, um, when a character in a movie says something like, Fear! Fear will keep the local systems in line. Fear of this battle station. When a character says something like that, we know we're dealing with a baddie. And when a teenage girl says to him later in that same film, 
the more you tighten your grip tuck and the more star systems will slip through your fingers. We know that this girl's got some prophetic wisdom. We know that she's smart. We know that she's a goodie. Because trying to control people through fear is both short-sighted and self-defeating. So how can God ask us to love him and fear him at the same time? Well, by way of explanation, I'd like to make uh, two interrelated points. Point number one is this. As a general rule of thumb, words in the Bible that we might think are referring to feelings, words such as love, hate, despise, fear, they are usually primarily referring to actions, not to feelings. The obsession with feelings is ours, not the Bible's. Those words that we think, oh, these are feeling words, more often than not, no, no, actually, the Bible is talking about actions, not feelings. Uh, So, for example, the book of Genesis tells us that Esau despised his birthright. Are we being told about his feelings? Is that what it means? No, it it doesn't mean that Esau felt contempt for his inheritance. No, actually, it was exactly the opposite. He wanted it desperately. And later on, he sought to retrieve it and could not even with tears. We're not being told about his feelings. We're told about his actions. What he did was he acted foolishly without thinking it through. He sold his inheritance for a bowl of porridge. We are not being told about his feelings. We're being told about his actions. As a contra example, in the book of 1 Samuel, Michal saw her husband, David, dancing away in the streets, and she did feel contempt for him. And in this case, we are told that she despised her husband in her heart. Now we're talking about feelings. Um, Michal felt contempt, and on the basis of those feelings, so she spoke and so she acted, speaking contemptuously to her husband, to her downfall. Because he was the Messiah. Um, So that's point one. When you come across a feeling word in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, think primarily in terms of actions, feelings second. Um, In order to make my second point, I'm going to simply ask the question, what does it look like when people don't fear the Lord? What does that look like? Um, That's great. Sorry about that. Well, um, my second point is, what does it look like When people don't fear the Lord, and we've got one really interesting example in King Saul, when um, uh, he didn't fear the Lord, and he disobeyed a direct instruction from God, and he let his his men, he let his soldiers, his warriors, feast on the plunder of a battle, the choice calves and the lambs, when all of it, by explicit instruction, ought to have been devoted completely to God. And later on, when he was rebuked by the prophet Samuel, Saul confessed and said that he was motivated, quote-unquote, by the fear of man. That was his motivation, the fear of man. Saul didn't mean that he was afraid of his troops. He wasn't wasn't fearful of the men. He wasn't concerned that they were going to lynch him. 
What he meant was that the mistake he made was acting in accord with their expectations because it was their approval and respect and praise he was working for. He wanted the approval of men, not God. So my conclusion is this. The phrase, the fear of the Lord, it's, it's not totally dissociated from feelings. There is an emotional component. There is a place for a healthy fear of the consequences of sin and a healthy fear of God's wrath and indignation. Absolutely. Just as a child can love her daddy with all her heart, yet the words, wait till your father gets home, brings her behavior straight back online, so too the fear of the Lord does have a secondary emotional component, a deep reverential respect for God. But the phrase, the fear of the Lord, is not actually primarily about feelings at all. It's actually primarily about actions. The fear of the Lord, irrespective of how we feel, the fear of the Lord is when we act in accordance with God's expectations, wanting his approval, praise more than anything else. That's where wisdom starts, wanting God's approval. So there we have it. In this passage, this beautiful paradox, if you fear God, you've got nothing to fear. And we have Moses acting as a mediator. He did an excellent job. He did a really great job as a mediator for, for, for 40 odd years, but not a perfect one. Um, and the real reason, the real reason why God was delighted with the people's suggestion of a mediated relationship was that actually, you want a mediator? That's great. I've prepared one earlier. Because this points to Jesus. It points to our need for Jesus. Uh, and it points to who Jesus is and what he does. Jesus, the perfect mediator. Um, what qualifies Jesus of Nazareth to be the perfect mediator between God and humanity? Well, from what we've looked at today, we can establish that Jesus of Nazareth will be qualified to be the perfect mediator between God and humanity if and only if he is genuinely able to faithfully represent God to humanity and humanity to God. If he can do both jobs faithfully simultaneously, then he's going to be the perfect mediator. Can he do it? Well, now with respect to those two things, we often actually focus on the former, don't we? The New Testament in its teaching and the Christian church in her preaching, we are often focusing on how Jesus represents God perfectly to us because he is the Son of God. He is divine, fully God, God with us. That's often what we focus on. We might indeed get um, uh, so far carried away in wanting to tell people about that, that we forget that from the perspective of his role as a mediator, that's actually only half his job. The other half of his job, equally important, if we're going um, to advocate him as the perfect mediator, the other half of his job is actually faithfully representing us to God. Well, the book of Hebrews answers this concern. Jesus, the only one who can faithfully represent us before God. 
And the line of argument, which I'm going to summarize very briefly here and not in the same order as the book of Hebrews, the line of argument is something a little bit like this. Firstly, firstly, Jesus is not an angel. Angels are God's creatures too. They're wonderful and powerful, but angels don't really know what it's like to be human because they're not human. They're angels. Secondly, Jesus is fully a human being. Flesh and blood, he shares fully in our humanity. Fully fully a human being, a man. Thirdly, Jesus, as a human being, is familiar with suffering. In fact, the salvation that he pioneered was made perfect through suffering. Jesus knows the way because he's walked it. Fourth, Jesus is not unable to, to, to empathize with us in our weaknesses because, because he too, just like us, is tempted. It was, he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He knows what it's like to be tempted. So he's sympathetic. Jesus knows the way because he's walked it. Fifth, Jesus offered to God as our faithful representative representing us, he offered the perfect thing to offer God. He offered himself. That's always the right thing to offer. He offered himself actually as a lamb without blemish, a man who'd never sinned. He poured out his blood on our behalf. That's precisely what we needed, so it is exactly the right thing for our representative to do on our behalf. Six. Jesus lives forever. Having offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins upon the cross, he was raised from the dead on the third day by God the Father, seated at the right-hand side of the Father, a permanent priesthood. He continually and continuously represents his people in the presence of God. What is Jesus doing right now? Right now, Jesus is praying for you and for me. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's always on the job. What a great mediator. Seventh, as our faithful representative, Jesus has secured for us a better deal than under Moses because Moses was a really good and faithful mediator, but he served faithfully in God's household as a servant. And that's a wonderful thing to be a servant of God. That's great. But actually, servants have no permanent place in the household. Jesus, on the other hand, was faithful in all God's house as a son. Because that's truly who he is. He's the son. And so he's won for us a better deal, belonging to God permanently in the household, eternally. Certainly we serve God as servants, but we belong as children. That's wonderful to belong as children, unconditional belonging, if we indeed hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Well, today we have considered the role of the mediator. It's a difficult job. Moses was a mediator, and he was a good one. But the job is finished 
finalized and fulfilled in Jesus. He is the one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The Lord be with you. 